sleek, agile, powerful, and possessing a multitude of guns on the nose and wings, the fighters of World War II have etched themselves a position in history akin to the greatest knights of the medieval world. It is little wonder why, since the image of dogfighting a warplane with an enemy aircraft so captures our collective imagination. However, in the 1930s, the days of dogfighting were looked upon by some as a thing of the past. The incredible power of huge bombers meant that cities would soon be wiped from the map as death rained down from the sky. And these bombers were not just powerful, but fast. Britain in this era was growing desperate. They needed an answer to these new bombers. And so they took a gamble on an innovative new concept, a concept that might just give them a tool to deal with the new incredible firepower that would soon be screaming over London, leaving ashes in its wake. This is the dawn of the turret fighters. Welcome to Wars of the World. In the 21st century, where air power is the most dominant factor on the modern battlefield, it is difficult to appreciate just how new a concept fighting a war in the air was in the early 1930s. The aeroplane itself was just over 27 years old, but was only truly a viable weapon for about 16 years, and as such, military tacticians contemplating how a future air war might look had only the four years of the Great War for a reference with which to develop their new tactics. Aircraft development had been slow during the 1920s, and despite some notable aeronautical achievements, such as Charles Lindbergh's historic non-stop transatlantic flight, practical warplanes differed little, if at all, from their great war predecessors. Now, however, as the storm clouds began gathering for a new war, a greater war than ever before, the importance of having planes with longer range, higher altitudes, and faster speeds became paramount. In the lattermost case especially, that of speed, tremendous advances were being made thanks to aircraft and engine manufacturers collaborating to compete in the many air races of the period. Demonstrating how much faster aircraft were becoming, at the end of the war in 1918, the Sopwith Camel, which was Britain's most successful fighter of that conflict, was capable of achieving 113 miles per hour. Six years later, in 1924, the Gloucester Gamecock was capable of 155. Ten years after that, in 1934, the RAF was ordering the Gloucester Gauntlet, which was capable of 230 miles per hour, and plans were already in the works for new monoplane fighters that promised speeds well in excess of 300 miles per hour, and even that number would only grow. The problem, of course, was that with these greater performance envelopes, the tactics of the Great War could no longer be applied, and thus new tactics were largely devised from conjecture or educated guesses. 
Given that the hard-learned lessons of the Western Front were now being dismissed, some within the Air Ministry and even the RAF leadership began to question whether the days of the dogfight were over. Since the incredible speed involved, particularly in a head-on encounter, appeared beyond the skills of any man in the cockpit. At the same time, the flying range of air bombers began to grow, to the point where fighters could no longer escort them all the way to their targets, and as such, they would have to be better able to defend themselves. This gave rise to the development of the powered gun turret. Positioned at key locations along the bomber's fuselage, the powered gun turret possessed greater firepower than the hand-operated machine guns of the previous generations of bombers, and could quickly bring those guns to bear on any attacking fighter positioned anywhere around the bomber, where the gunner had a clear line of sight. The perceived threat of these fast bombers, armed with turrets to take down conventional fighters, was thought to be so high that the RAF began giving serious consideration towards developing a new fighter aircraft fitted with a powered turret with which to counter them. The arms race for air supremacy had truly begun. In the early 1930s, newly developed single-engine light bombers, such as the RAF's Hawker Hart, were found to be faster than most fighters of the day, rendering them impervious to interception. Recognizing that potential enemies could build equally fast bombers, the Hawker company reworked the Hart into a two-seater fighter, which would give the RAF the ability to intercept an aircraft with the Hart's performance. The result was the Hawker Demon, powered by a 512 horsepower Rolls-Royce Kestrel V12 engine that pulled the biplane along at 182 miles per hour. Despite the common view of fighters having a single pilot, two-seater fighters were nothing new, and actually predated their single-seat counterparts. The Demon pilot was afforded two forward-firing 303 Vickers machine guns mounted in troughs on the fuselage, while the gunner in the rear cockpit was equipped with a single 303 Lewis machine gun. However, it was here that the problem of older concepts meeting the incredible new power of machines began to be demonstrated. The speed of the Hawker Demon at full throttle was so much that when racing to intercept an enemy plane, the rear gunner had great difficulty in physically turning the gun barrel into the aircraft's slipstream. This made combat both exhausting physically and highly inefficient. So work began on addressing the problem, leading to the development of a powered gun turret to ease the burden on the gunner and double his available firepower. The hydraulically powered gun turrets for the Demon were rather basic and consisted of a protective shield, dubbed the Lobster Back, behind the gunner which blocked the airflow over his position, improving the gun's accuracy and ease of movement when engaging aircraft in the rear hemisphere. Production switched from the earlier model Demon to these so-called turret demons, and eventually, earlier models were returned to the factory for conversion. The turret Demon was a fine aircraft for its day, but its day would not last long. Serving quietly through the 1930s, it was withdrawn by the outbreak of the war, but the concept of fighters equipped with turrets was still finding favor with British air commanders. 
Perhaps wanting to be the first to the punch in this new era of air warfare, in 1935, the British Air Ministry issued Specification F935, which outlined their desire for the RAF to field a large monoplane fighter whose main armament would be contained within a turret behind the pilot. Of the plethora of British aircraft manufacturers at the time, two designs were finalised, one being from Hawker, the company that had already produced the turret Demon and would eventually manufacture the legendary Hurricane, and the other from Bolton Paul, who were gaining extensive experience with power-operated turrets thanks to building Hawker's turret Demon under contract and building the Overstrand Bomber. Despite the Air Ministry initially eyeing up Hawker's design, in the end, Bolton Paul's proposal beat out Hawker's aircraft to win a production order. The new aircraft incorporated many of the features that were becoming the norm for the next era of warplanes, such as being a monoplane instead of a biplane, and having a retractable undercarriage to increase aerodynamic efficiency once in the air. Power was derived from a Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, which would be the standard power plant for the RAF's fighter force in the coming years, it being selected for both the Hurricane and the Supermarine Spitfire. Although the power of the turret came at a cost, it would be slower than those airplanes, capable of just topping 300 miles per hour. The turret was designed by the Frasian Nash Company and was equipped with four 303 machine guns mounted in two opposite pairs. Originally manually traversed, it was later fitted with a hydraulic power system and the entire turret could run through a full 360 degree rotation, although the guns would be electrically interrupted if the pilot pointed them at the propeller arc or tail. However, because the turret was intended to be the main armament of the new aircraft, the designers did not include forward firing armament, confident that the turret would be sufficient for engaging enemy aircraft. Dubbed the Bolton Paul Defiant, the new turret fighter first took to the air on August 11th, 1937, and was undertaking acceptance trials within a year. The aircraft was found to be a stable platform, perfect for its role as a turret fighter, but delays with development and then production meant that the Defiant was not ready for service when war broke out on September 1st, 1939. The RAF was founded on April 1st, 1918 and was created out of an amalgamation of both the Army's Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. As such, for almost the entirety of the interwar years, naval air power lay in limbo between what the Admiralty wanted to do and what the parent RAF wanted. The Fleet Air Arm, or FAA as it was known, was often organised alongside RAF lines, flying navalised versions of RAF planes, and consequently the FAA was also looking into developing its own turret fighter at the same time as the RAF. Issued in December 1935, specification 03035 outlined an aircraft broadly equivalent to the Defiant, although the FAA had a slightly different operational doctrine in mind. The Royal Navy still clung to the belief that naval gunfire was the primary means with which to defend the fleet from air attack, and so instead viewed their fighter aircraft as flying pickets, 
operating outside of the visual range of the fleet to give advance warning of an impending attack by bombers. They also saw fighters as a way of warding off enemy maritime patrol aircraft that were tracking the fleet and coordinating attacks by hostile ships and submarines. It was because of these factors, the FAA never anticipated that in a future conflict, it would have to go up against high performance fighters, and so it didn't have a requirement for naval versions of the Hurricane or Spitfire before 1939. Bolton Paul did modify their design for the RAF specification to meet the FAA requirement essentially offering a navalized defiance. But in the end, the contract was awarded to the Blackburn Company, who offered up a development of their Skua General Purpose Warplane, which was then in development for naval use. A low-wing monoplane design, the rather lackluster Skua typified how the Navy viewed the use of their aircraft, being slower than land-based equivalents, yet still expected to carry out all three main roles of fighter, dive bomber, and reconnaissance, but always secondary to warship guns. Dubbed the Blackburn Rock, the prototype of the new aircraft flew for the first time on December 23rd, 1938, and three examples were then flown to Martlesham Heath for government evaluation in March of 1939. Performance of the naval turret fighter was woefully disappointing, its top speed being just 223 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour slower than the Defiant, which was itself no spring chicken compared to a Spitfire. Also, like many FAA aircraft, the Rock was expected to operate as a float plane, but during trials in this configuration, the aircraft proved extremely unstable, and one prototype crashed as a result. A minor redesign was implemented to correct the problem, but the floats cost the rock even more speed, dragging its top speed down to just 193 miles per hour, and so they were never used operationally. The Chief of the Naval Air Services, Admiral Sir Alexander Ramsey, was so unimpressed with the rock that in 1938 he recommended the project be dropped at once to focus on more capable designs. Unfortunately, bureaucracy had beaten him to the punch, and with a desperate need for rearmament, the Air Ministry had already placed an order for 136 rocks, and it was not to be cancelled because of the disruption it would cause to the production line at Bolton Paul, who had been subcontracted out by the overstretched Blackburn Company to build the rock. Thus, the FAA was starting the Second World War with a turret fighter it did not want. And so, the curtain falls on peacetime in Europe, and the world is tossed once again into the maw of death and destruction on a level never seen before or since. And as we can see, the cracks in the plan for the turret fighters are already starting to show. These cracks will soon lead to an almost total collapse, and before World War II is over, we'll see the concept of the turret fighter go up in flames. Join us next time on Wars of the World for part two in the story of Britain's failed superweapon, the downfall of the turret fighter. Please like this video and subscribe to support the channel, and I'll see you next time.